damaged people are dangerous. They know they can survive. Hey, I'm Erin Hosier. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. Welcome to this very happy and depressing Valentine's Day edition of Tell Me About Your Father, <laughs> where we're going to be applying the same razor-sharp critical analysis that we've been giving to television shows mm. on our show, like Mad Men and The Sopranos, but this time to a 30-year-old movie called Damage, which is the story of a family torn apart by a father's affair with his son's girlfriend. Damage is based on the sensational 1991 novel by British author Josephine Hart and directed by Louis Mal, known for films like The Lovers, My Dinner with Andre, and Pretty Baby, and starring Juliette Binoche, Miranda Richardson, and as the father, EGOT winner, Jeremy Irons, currently playing the patriarch Rodolfo Gucci in House of Gucci, but also known for such classics as The French Lieutenant's Woman, Reversal of Fortune, and of course, playing Humbert Humbert in the Adrian Lyne version of Lolita. If you liked our episodes dedicated to season six of The Sopranos, you're gonna love this feel-bad movie of a father unwilling and unable to stop destroying his family in the name of sexual obsession. And busy, there's politicians. He's a politician, mm -hmm. a powerful man who blew up his life. Who are some of the other politicians and powerful men that we know, that we talk about on this show all the time, especially on Daddy Issues? Woody Allen, Oof. Bill Clinton, Oof. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Prince Charles, Hunter Biden. A lot of the dudes who flew on the Lolita Express, guys we don't even know about yet, but this is a hot and campy, sometimes campy, sometimes earnestly upsetting film. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. It is earnestly upsetting. And it does tell the age old story of infidelity of men who get that TNT out and they detonate their marriage and their life and don't look back. Women do do this too. Mm -hmm. But as you just pointed out, historically, and especially in pop culture and the, the people that we talk about on this show, these people are typically men. Yes. Yes. It's rarer for the mom to leave the children in these instances. And that's why it's that cliche. In fact, busy. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many Reddit threads. I went down a rabbit hole. My girlfriend cheated on me with my dad. You know, these are earnest threads. There was a piece in the Daily Mail. Um, a woman 25 ditches her childhood sweetheart with his 61-year-old father. I mean, it happens. And this is also a British-French movie. So we're dealing with that aspect. Yeah, there's a, it's like a, a seesaw in a way. There's a lot of British repression on one side of the seesaw. 
and then just palpable psychosexual horniness on the other side of the seesaw and it just goes wah 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 all through the movie for listeners at home that noise is the effect of a seesaw going changing sides i love that yeah so i've seen this movie before many times but you had not seen it when Mm-mm. I came to visit you in New York last summer, 2021, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we must have been talking about daddy issues, movies, yeah. themed movies. And I was like, have you ever seen Damage? You, and, and you hadn't heard of it because you're young and free. Young and free. <laughs> and it, we found it. It's it's hard to find clips of it. It's not a very, po- it's kind of obscure. It's an art house. There's not a lot of clips on YouTube. It's an art house. I think you can only stream it on Amazon, but. But it's worth it. It is worth it. I'd never heard of it before. You had seen it a bunch. And you like, I think you saw it for the first time when you were in college. And I had read the book, which was such a phenomenon because it's less than 200 pages. So you can read it real fast. Mm -hmm. You're on the edge of your seat. Like, what's this guy going to do? You know, because he's narrating from a place of the other side of something bad. The other thing that we'll talk about in this episode is the father stories slash backgrounds of the kind of key players in this movie so Josephine Hart the writer of the book it's based on had a crazy sad life with lots of loss that you kind of see reflected in some of the story we look at the relationship between Louis Maul and two of his kids his son and his daughter and some comments that he made about hyper close relationships or even incestuous relationships between mothers and sons which is an, yeah. another theme that he has explored in his own movies mm-hmm. um and then we look at jeremy irons wow i learned wow. a lot about jeremy irons i really learned a lot like just has said some really bonkers stuff also about incest but within the terms of criticizing gay marriage and byzantine stupid arguments about rich people needing to be richer and just being dumb people should stay to the end we're going to go through and recap this film pretty Mm -hmm. much scene by scene because it's a lot but it's also very simple to explain in some ways and we've got clips for days stick around enjoy your valentine i just want to apologize to my mother who faithfully listens to this show there is a lot of fucking in this movie that we we play clips there is a notable orgasm that happens in this film that we play clips of this might be an episode that you don't want to listen to it's a horny dad episode it's a horny valentine's day upsetting trauma romp upsetting trauma romp let's get to it So let's get into it. Damage is rife with daddy issues with a capital D and a capital I, but also (laughs) the ways that dysfunction can play out in families and extreme bonds between parent and child. We'll give like the basic logline for the plot of this movie. 
Jeremy Irons is Stephen, a father having an affair with his son's fiance, Anna, played by Juliette Binoche. Holy cow, she's just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And we are going to spoil everything in this 30-year-old movie. Yeah. Um, We're just going to take you through, because Busy recently saw this for the first time, and I've seen it probably 12 times. Mm -hmm. I saw it for the first time, like, Soon after it came out when I was still a teenager, so it had, you know, a huge effect on my life Mm. for reasons we'll get into, the drama. And this affair that these two have is a classic example of a man blowing up his life. He has everything right he's he works for the prime minister or something yeah in in london he's a politician and he's like sometimes on tv it's telegraphed to us that he is an important person that's right he's an important person he's definitely wealthy it's one of those london townhouses that he lives in that's got a chef's kitchen if you know what I mean Miranda Richardson wears a lot of beige and earth tones and silks Miranda Richardson plays his wife plays his wife Ingrid they have two children Martin who is at the center of this he's in his early 20s and then they also have a younger daughter who's I think she's 14 and her name is Sally Mm. And they are just on top of the world. But immediately you sense that Stephen is very buttoned up, very English in that never complain, never explain. There's very little dialogue in this movie. That's right. There isn't. A lot of scenes are just filled with furtive glances Mm -hmm. and implications. And I think great acting. I think at the time it was both panned and, you know, kind of a big deal in the art house. Louis Malle, the director, is like he is basically known his whole career for making movies that are sex, sex, sex. I think it was NC-17 or unrated when it came out because it was considered so raunchy Mm -hmm. and hardcore. But actually, by today's standards... There's not much going on. There isn't. Which we'll get into. Yeah. I went back and read like a few reviews and they were pretty hard on it. The New York Times was baffled by it and compared it to Dynasty and said that the acting is way over the top. But both of the reviews noted how unrealistic and sort of acrobatic the sex in it is. And it's funny because when we watched it, That didn't really stick out to me. Of course, there's the sex scenes in the movie are absurd, and we'll get into that later. But I started thinking like, yeah, if this movie came out today, I don't think it would get an NC-17. And I don't think anyone would blink an eye at the sex in it because of internet pornography desensitizing us all. I mean, there's nudity. There is full frontal Jeremy Irons nudity. Oh, yeah. And you see Jeremy Irons' dick in this movie a couple times, but you also see it in, like, a lot of his work. He's always naked. And spoiler, full bush. Spoiler, <laughs> spoiler full bush. He was not manscaping. That wasn't a thing in the nine, early 90s. Indeed. I'm not sure if he was quite 50 in this movie yet. He was born in 48, so he would have been 44 when this movie was made. 
which is shocking because he has this basically silver gray hair. Oh, yeah. And it's long, and he looks very distinguished and sexy and older than 44. He totally looks older than 44. But the point is, is that he he's a politician. He lives in a fancy yep. house. He has a son named Mart- Martin. Martin. is a journalist, works for the newspaper. His daughter, Sally, is a teenager. And we open with him being at some kind of hoity-toity, stuffy party where he's like... He has to mingle. He's standing there with a colleague. But his wife is not there. His wife and daughter are at home. And you get the sense that he does not want to be at this very boring work party. And he just wants to go home. And what happens next? Oh, my God. The seas part. And there is the stunning Mm. Juliette Binoche wearing black or some dramatic palette. She has a very short haircut that's kind of hot. It's like boyish. She's so gorgeous in this movie. Immediately, she's a woman of presence. Yes. And she has a predatory energy, like, immediately. She goes up to Stephen, and she's like, Hello, I'm Anna Barton. You know, maybe you've heard of me. And he's like, I've heard of you. Because she's Martin's friend. You're Martin's father. I'm Anna Barton. I felt I ought to introduce myself. How do you do how long have you known him? Oh, not very long. I see. I... We've been closed just a few months. Yes, I, I, um... I've heard about you. And then they have this super meaningful, long sex up-and-down eye contact situation. Full-on eye sex. Both bodies are scanned. It's electric. They have immediate chemistry. They're immediately really attracted to each other. A classic, like, what was that moment has just occurred between the two of them. Men, Mm. literally the next day or that weekend or something, old Martin shows up with Anna for an introduction to the folks for the first time. Right. And she shakes hands with Stephen and... And nothing happens. They just act as if they've never met before. But boy, do they recognize each other. This is Anna, my father. Nice to meet you. Out of the gates, they lie. And immediately also, Ingrid is very suspicious of Anna and is not feeling her vibes. Mm -hmm. The next day after that, Anna, who works at Sotheby's, by the way, because of course she does. Right. Anna calls Stephen at work where he is very busy. Yeah, we'll play the clip. Yes. It's Anna. Give me your address. I'll be there in an hour. That's not like she's like, hey, this is Anna. Remember me? Um, Do you want to meet up for a drink or what? It's just out of the gates. He's like, what's your address? Oh, my God. Like, that's it. Dude, that's it. And so immediately it gets right into it. He goes into her flat. The door is open. And the bedroom is like 
off the entryway to the right and he just kind of like instinctively goes in there and she is sitting on the bed okay Uh like on the edge of the bed she's wearing a chaste white blouse that is like buttoned up to the neck Mm -hmm. and a understated like it's got to be armani or something like a pencil skirt you thought prada i mean for the listeners at home just visualize like like a nun but like chic prada italian power dress bitch yeah and minimalist like she's not a adornment type no and it would hold up today all the fashion in this movie it could be yesterday she looks incredible She's sort of androgynous, too. So androgynous. So she's sitting on the edge of the bed, and he just sees her in the doorway. Yeah. No, no, no dialogue, by the way. No dialogue He just walks into the apartment, and they see each other. No, hello. No, No, how was your day? No, hello. No, thanks for coming over. Hey, isn't it crazy that I'm your son's girlfriend? (laughs) Yeah. She slowly slides down the bed while putting her arms out in the Jesus Christ on the cross pose. Yeah, she slides off the bed onto the floor and her arms are up on the bed and she's sitting on the floor, but her arms are still on the bed. Oh my God, I got so excited. I forgot to cue the clip. (laughs) I I really did. I mean, it's hot. Okay, so we're going to play a clip of this. Oh, and, and also just to visualize for the listeners at home, She is wearing incredible, totally hot Wolford hosiery, or we think Wolford. And is she wearing garters or not? No, they just stay up, Mm -hmm. which is ladies at home and some gentlemen know about these stockings. They're like $115 and they are called stay ups and they kind of have this like rubberized it's like in lieu of garters, sex stockings. They're super hot. But for me, I called them quitters because <laughs> I could never make them last unless I was like in a horizontal position. Like you can't walk around with them. Like I guess if you're. It's just for special occasions if you know what we mean. Okay. So he immediately goes up to her. She lays on the floor at that point. In Jesus' arms spread. Yes. All clothes are on. Mm-hmm. And he basically just gets in there. He unzips and goes. So I'm going to play right when he gets in. Okay? Right when he gets into the room? No, into her. Oh, my God. So right now, she breathes for the first time. That's all it is. So he's in, (laughs) and then they have, like, a slow thrust, like it's an eye-to-eye contact. Stephen breathes deeply. So that's one, two, three. Yeah, we counted their thrusting. All you hear is the breathing, and intense eye contact. And how many pumps are there? Maybe five? Maybe five seconds. It's, it's a 10 second exchange. It's really slow. And all of a sudden, here is Stephen's orgasm. Oh, oh. We were shocked by that moment because it sounds like a seal barking. Oh, oh. It's a peculiar orgasm. 
it's it's quintessential Jeremy Irons, right? Like, what was his direction? You know, orgasm, Jer, orgasm. Yeah. Lou Mal says to yeah. Big Jer, okay, the note is for you to orgasm. And then he's like, <laughs> I will make this my own. Very method. But actually... Hats off to Big Jer because it totally works. And it's strange, but you're like, yep. that seal bark orgasm lets you know how repressed he is, right? That's he right. needed that 30 seconds. It's the first time in his life that he has had this kind of sex. Mm-hmm. And he is psyched. He's psyched. So... She is basically, you know, she breathes a little, but doesn't have any sort of other reaction. She's certainly not orgasming. She does not have an orgasm, duh. And that's it. And it's over within 30 seconds. And then it's kind of like he leaves. In the next scene in the movie, we switch to what's happening with Martin. Mm. He has been promoted at his newspaper where he's a promising young journalist and he I think he's deputy editor or managing editor something like that and so the family gets together with Anna for a celebratory dinner in a fancy restaurant so they're in public Mm -hmm. with Stephen and the whole family and obviously Anna is kind of the focal point for Ingrid who asks her very directly about her childhood. Right. She's like, what's this girl's deal? She's dating my son. I want to know about her family. What was your life like? What's your upbringing like? And Anna says that her brother, a year older than her, committed suicide. And Ingrid's like, why did he commit suicide? Which, like, inappropriate (laughs) question to ask. I know. And not the usual (laughs) British, I don't know. It's quite a probing question. And very dramatic. And then, you know, Anna simply says, love. Yeah. Everyone at the table is like, what? Totally. Stephen is like losing his shit. Raging boner under the table. He's shaking. Oh, my God. He cannot contain himself. So he claims he has to go back to the office. But instead, he goes to Anna's and lies in wait for his own son to take her home because everybody has to work tomorrow. It's a work night. It's a school night. So he waits and then they have another boning session. This time she's also on her back and it's like he's in a doorway. She's in a doorway. He throws her up against the wall and Mm -hmm. then he sweeps off whatever's on the desk and pushes her down he clears what's on the desk to like so they can have sex on it with one with one sweep of his arm all those paperweights the stapler all of her take-home work from Sotheby's is just strewn about what is her reaction she giggles maniacally she loves her power in that moment yes Mm-hmm. And so after this session, which is really, you know, in the same week for sure, and they have a conversation. And after sex, Anna describes her brother's death to Stephen. You know, light conversation, pillow talk. <laughs> so she tells him the story of Austin and that he was 16 and that he was obsessed with her and didn't want her to grow up. 
He wanted me all to himself. She doesn't get into the details that we learn later, but she says the infamous line in this film. Remember, damaged people are dangerous. They know they can survive. Damaged people are dangerous. They know they can survive. There are other funny, uh, just like bits of dialogue in this movie. Famous lines such as Stephen says, I want you. And Anna says, I know. That was a great line. I loved that exchange. Just saying, I know, back to him. Yeah. As you can imagine, Stephen's now completely obsessed. Utterly obsessed. He can't stop thinking about her. And it comes out that Ingrid's like, oh, Martin's taking Anna to Paris this weekend. And so Stephen fully leaves a conference in Brussels. Yeah, he is in Brussels when he gets this information. Mm -hmm. And he has a, a ding, ding, ding light bulb moment. That he is going to take the train from Brussels to Paris during like a break in the UN conference. He has like three hours or something. Right. And he knows where they're staying, probably the Ritz or somebody some somewhere super, um, you know, Carrie Bradshaw goes to Paris. Mm-hmm. And he finds out what room they're in and calls early in the morning. They're sleeping. Anna and Martin are, are sleeping like lovers in the nude and, and the phone wakes them and Martin answers and... It's for Ms. Barton, please. And she gets on the phone and Stephen brazenly is like, I'm downstairs. She gets up out of that bed uh-huh. and goes down to one of those like Parisian alleyways. There's church bells ringing outside as Stephen again has like thigh high sex with all their clothes on up against a wall, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they go and have sex in like a church doorway. It looks like they're in a church and they're standing up and it's very, the New York Times review for (laughs) damages in 1992 was perplexed by this scene, the writer was, and thought it was absolutely ridiculous. My teenage mind thought it was the hottest thing I'd ever seen and that this is what sex should always be like, which is a (laughs) bad message particularly for women, very short. Very short sex. There's nothing going on. Like, she kisses his neck and they just do it. So what does he do when she she's like, I must go. And she leaves and goes back to sleeping Martin. And Stephen doesn't stop there. He gets a room yeah. for a couple hours. I don't know how he figures out how to do this, but like right across the courtyard so he can literally see into their suite. He's supposed to be going back to Brussels because he has work. He stays. He hatches this plan to like get a hotel room looking into across the courtyard his son and Anna's room where he sits and watches them. It's creepy. It's gross. It's desperate. Mm -hmm. So then, really, the next scene is Stephen again. Another unannounced visit to Anna's place. But this time, there's a strange man there. Mm -hmm. And she seems a little flustered. Right. She makes up 
why he's there and says that he's there to get a book. You must have come for the book. And then she introduces him as the father of Martin to this strange man. And then, you know, it comes out that they're old friends. And he, too, seems to intimate that there's something going on with Anna and this father of her boyfriend. He gets it. Yeah, he knows what's up. This guy, his name is Peter. He can pick up on it immediately. There's no book. Steven is there to bang. Peter, it should be noted, is played by Peter Stormare, who is in uh, Fargo. He plays a kidnapper with Steve Buscemi in Fargo. Thank you. Okay, so Steven's all pissed off, and Peter leaves, and he's like, what the fuck? To Anna, and she's like, listen, this guy is always going to be in my life because he's always been in my life. And she finally tells the story of Austin, her brother's suicide, and what that was really about, Mm -hmm. which is Austin, the 16-year-old brother, was obsessed with her sexually and doesn't want her to grow up and doesn't want her to go on a date with Peter, a teenage Peter. Mm And apparently, like, hangs himself that night. And Anna tells Stephen that she then lost her virginity to Peter. Yes. Telling him that night after she saw her dead brother's body hanging from the rafters. I told him to fuck me. Fuck me, I said. It's really, it's really another one of the funny. I told him to fuck me. Fuck me, I said. She then warns Stephen that she hates possessiveness, which I beg to differ. Yeah, that's her whole thing. She loves being chased. Yes. And the whole movie indeed is like the living embodiment of Maya Angelou's quote, when people tell you who they are, believe them. Mm-hmm. That's right. Steven does not. He does what a phrase some people might recognize from 12-step <laughs> recovery is painting red flags green. In this moment, Whoa. it is straight up. Steven comes over. He finds another guy in the apartment. The other guy hmm. clearly has history with her. She says after he leaves, we have history. He talks about, she talks about her brother killing himself. Because he wanted to, quote, possess her. And basically being turned on by exactly. it. It's very V.C. Andrews. She's hinting that she and her brother had had a sexual obsession, obsession with or... each other. And it's also, I have to say, a weird exchange because prior to this, and I think in Paris, mm-hmm. Stephen tells Anna, I'm going to leave my wife. I don't want to sneak around anymore and I'm going to blow up my whole family to be with you. And she says, don't do that. Don't blow it all up. Let me just get married to your son. And then you'll always have, quote, access to me. And we can have sex whenever we want to because I'll, you know, be around all the time. And that to me doesn't track with the I hate possessiveness. Or though maybe it just tracks with the idea of a woman that's like, I will fuck both father and son. Neither will own me. I will have both of them. Totally. So I do have a bit of that clip. And so this is Stephen telling Anna that he wants to leave his wife. I can't go on. Not like this. I mean, what happened in in Paris? The way I behaved. 
I've never had feelings like this. I have to get them into some sort of order. I know it'll be it'll be hard for Martin. He's fond of. He loves me. Yes, I know. But he's young. He'll get over it. He's your son. He'd hate you. He'd hate me for a while. But... You'd lose him. You'd lose your own son. You'd also destroy the life you've made with Ingrid. It's a good life. What you're saying doesn't make sense. How come you're so sure? Because in your heart you don't even want it. You want us to start eating breakfast together? Yes, I would like that. <laughs> would you? Would you actually like it if we lived in the same house, read the papers together? What would you gain if you left Ingrid? You. I'd gain you. You'd be gaining something you already have. Mm. Yeah, she kind of calls bullshit. I think she sees that what he really wants is like another monogamous relationship and for them to live this domestic fantasy life. And she's telling him, you know, that that's going to fade. And I also don't do that. Yeah. And foreshadowing, like, do you really think that this is going to end well? Right. Like in us getting married instead. It's ridiculous. And like her emphasis on you, you really would lose your son. Like you really would be willing to lose your son. And he's very sort of cavalier about it. Well, he'll get over it. It's an interesting scene to me because I think it's like what a lot of people tell themselves who are having an affair is yeah. like my kids will get over it and boy do they not get over it and also like this is the greatest love I've ever had because this is the greatest sex I've ever had or the most exciting sex absolutely it feels very like puerile and like you feel a little embarrassed for Stephen because you get the sense this is all very new for him and it's it's old hat for Anna it she is. doesn't she does not need him to fall in love with her and yet she dangles that later kind of by telling him don't worry it's actually better if I marry your son because then I'll always be around and we can just keep doing this well yeah because this is even before the next scene, obviously, mm -hmm. where the whole family go to Stephen's father-in-law's estate. That's Ingrid's father. He's a super rich guy. Mm -hmm. And he's completely charmed by Anna, the only other person who outwardly likes her or appears to, besides Martin. Because Stephen has to, like, keep it under control. But at this dinner, Martin... There's a scene where he starts a conversation about happy childhoods and sort of ruminates on how they're a mirage and that not everything is always what it seems mm -hmm. when looking at a happy family. And then Ingrid says something like, oh, I suppose it was my fault, you know, the mother. And then Martin says, no, it was really dad. If I had to put a finger on it, he says it was dad's lack of warmth and sense of remoteness. Mm -hmm. And Stephen's response to this is nothing, really. 
Stephen is stunned and does not know what to say. But I wrote in my notes that it's very Prince Harry calling out Prince Charles right now. It feels like Martin, because he's of, of a younger generation that maybe has more access to its feelings, even a 1992 version mm -hmm. of this, that he's willing to call Stephen out and to do it in front of Anna and his his grandfather. Yeah, and really putting the ball in Stephen's court to, like, actually answer for his coldness as a father, mm -hmm. and to which he doesn't really respond. In the novel, Josephine Hart, extrapolating on how our childhood forms us, she writes, They say that childhood forms us, that those early influences are the key to everything. Is the peace of the soul so easily won? simply the inevitable result of a happy childhood? What makes childhood happy? Parental harmony? Good health? Security? Might not a happy childhood be the worst possible preparation for life, like leading a lamb to the slaughter? Wow. And then the next announcement at the dinner table is that Martin and Anna are engaged. So then Stephen and Martin play billiards. As men do. Yes. Not pool billiards. And Martin tells Stephen how much he loves Anna. And Stephen's like, are you sure? Which sucks. And he's like, of course. And she has kind of a fucked up mother. But that's really the only thing. And, and then we see later that night, Anna has her own quarters and Ingrid and Stephen have their own quarters and every family member has their own room. And Stephen sneaks into Anna's room, who's like ready and waiting for him. While the family is asleep, everybody is asleep. Always pushing mm -hmm. it, always like closer and closer to being discovered. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it, but daughter Sally basically catches her father walking out of the post-coital scene of Anna's room and like basically kind of zipping up or something like she definitely sees and immediately registers mm -hmm. and later on Stephen gets his daughter alone in the daytime and the afternoon and kind of says, you know, one of those Don Draper excuses to his daughter, Sally, mm -hmm. but when she catches him having sex, I know you think you saw something, but it's adults. It's complicated. It wasn't anything gaslighting. Right. But yeah. This is, this is hard to watch for me and possibly for anyone right? listening to this who's experienced similar situations where they catch a parent cheating and then the parent freaks out and tries to lie their way out of it to their own child via yeah. and I don't think you I think you're misunderstood it's a little chilling and definitely sad because it foreshadows other breaks in Sally and Stephen's relationship mm -hmm. I mean we can assume after the end of the movie they never speak again really but yeah it's a common dynamic, unfortunately. This is where it starts to pull apart a little bit. So Anna's mom is a figure, and I don't even think she necessarily needs to come into this, but Anna doesn't have a father. 
or she did. He worked in politics like Stephen, mm -hmm. but he's no longer around for some reason. We don't know if he died or what, but her mother is very eccentric, an American who lives in Palm Springs, who's been married four or five times. Yep. And she kind of comes to the estate to meet who will be her in-laws. And she's just like an over-the-top, she does seem like a dynasty character. She totally does. She looks like Joan Collins. And she's like yeah. the stereotype of a, you know, gauche American with bad taste and bad manners. And so she says in front of the family how much Martin resembles her late son, Austin, but how Martin isn't usually... Anna's type, which is rude as hell to say. Totally. And so Anna's like, uh, mother, why must you always do this? Mm -hmm. And she's very upset. But mom gets Stephen, pulls him aside later and says, I know what you're doing. You must get out of this. You must stop. She's dangerous. Anna's mom can deduce that Stephen and her daughter are having sex. And so she pulls him aside and says... You must be careful. She's sexually dangerous. He's not listening. She's sexual napalm, to <laughs> use the phrase John Mayer used to describe Jessica Simpson. Perfect analogy. So Stephen is now facing the reality that Anna's going to be his literal daughter-in-law. Okay. Mm -hmm. He falls into a, a deeper depression than he's already in. He goes to Martin's office to confess. He goes to like the newspaper and one of the reviews that I read pointed out that this is a character who does have a certain amount of fame right. and would be recognized wherever he goes and seems to be like flagrantly like there's something about him, i.e. narcissism that makes it where he's like. I'm just going to go to the newspaper and see my son to tell him, a journalist, that I am fucking his fiance. Why would this famous politician go to what's assumed to be the Guardian or the Telegraph mm -hmm. to the newsroom of a place where he would be instantly recognized to confess to his son? But to your point, I think it absolutely tracks with like, Yes. What we look at with very risky, narcissistic behavior. Hello, look at, I mean, maybe in 1992, we didn't have a cavalcade of Bill Clinton's. I was going to say Bill and Monica. Anthony Weiner. And sexting a 15-year-old. The insane ego that goes into, like, yeah. one, being a politician, and two, assuming that, like, you can kind of skate away from any repercussions yeah. and put yourself in super risky scenarios because it's exciting etc cetera, etc cetera. and martin is like dad i'm too busy to talk because steven has no ability to communicate so whatever comes out of his mouth is always something like stammering and general right he says like i think we need to talk and he's just like i i just wanted to say congratulations again or he tries to get out of it he whistles out and while he's there, he sees that there is a photograph, a black and white photograph of the three of them, Martin, Anna, and Stephen. And we'll see this photograph later, but Martin is like, why don't you take it? 
He also, Stephen also has a chance to confess to Ingrid later that night in the baths. He's taking a bath, yeah. And he doesn't. And she senses like, oh, he's about to tell me he's having an affair or something bad, but I don't really want to know about it. So I'm going to like just leave him to his bath. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he tries to tell her something and she's like, eh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, English wife. Anna sends a key to Stephen's office, even though he's like, we have to stop this. And she's like, okay. She ends up getting a flat, an apartment for just the two of them. It's being renovated and the building is under construction and it's got one of those like those European architectural staircases that goes around and around a winding staircase and at the top of that staircase she gets this flat and sends him like a tiffany very expensive keychain with the key on it Mm -hmm. and that's gonna be the place where they they meet to continue their love even after she's married so they meet at the flat and At this point in the movie, this is the first time when there's kind of a montage where we see Anna bringing flowers to set the scene, bringing a a cheese plate Mm -hmm. um, and charcuterie and, you know, just making things nice for her lover. And he comes to (laughs) the flat and they make love. They don't have furtive sex. They have, you know, they're naked for the first time. And they've actually, to your point, had like kind of a proper date, for lack of a better word. Like she put out wine and food and like, Mm -hmm. it's like their first sort of we're together thing. Yeah, it is their first date. You're right. During sex, which is quite acrobatic and funny. She's wearing a Cartier dog collar and nothing else. Her birthday suit. Oh, it's really great. It's a really, she looks amazing. Iconic. And wouldn't you know it, who comes up the stairs and finds them? Martin. Somebody had called their flat where they live together. Mm -hmm. They called Martin to say, oh, the apartment needs to be, the boiler needs to be turned on. So he, using his journalist skills, looks into it and sees that Anna has either rented or bought this flat without his knowledge. So he goes and the door is open. The key, the Tiffany key is still in the lock because Stephen just couldn't wait. And he turns it. Everybody locks eyes with each other. They are fucking with a capital F, too. They're both totally oh my God, naked. He sees it all. Yeah, they make he eye contact with him. Everyone, it's, it is, wow. It's devastating. He stammers something about the boiler and then backs away physically, falling to his death over the railing of the stairway to heaven. Yes, the, the stairway to heaven. Oh, my God. So Martin is stunned. He's standing there. He's in shock. And Stephen is like, Martin, like, you know, like they start scrambling and Martin backs out of the room as you would back away from a murder scene or something like he was. He's in shock. 
and he starts walking backwards and he walks backwards out of the apartment and trips over his own feet and falls over the railing railing. of this beautiful staircase. And the floors are marble. So, you know, there's, I mean, he just splats in front of the construction workers. And what does, what does Stephen do, Aaron? He runs down the staircase and that's when Steven switches from the character to Jeremy Irons himself because we see full bush full peen bobbing up and down as he runs down to cradle his dead son who is fully clothed blood coming from the head wound Mm -hmm. holding his son and sobbing Mm -hmm. And I think some construction worker like comes over and drapes some like kind a of sheet. blanket yeah, over him for modesty. Then what happens? What's Anna's? Response? Oh my god! The shot is like Stephen is totally naked, holding his bleeding son's head, his dead son, sobbing, realizing what he's done. And over his shoulder, you see Anna come down the stairs dressed and just slips out, just walks out of the apartment building onto the street like nothing has happened. Ice cold. And he stays behind, of course, to like talk to the police. And then you see the paparazzi line. Right. There is like massive media interest around the fact that this has happened, obviously. It's a but huge there scandal. would be because it's a sex scandal plus a tragedy it's shakespearean Mm -hmm. and through it all steven is he goes home and there's poor ingrid whose face is literally battered and she's like i've been beating myself she's been heading herself but still he's kind of like why who would do such a thing yeah and this performance that miranda richardson gives in this scene is a tour de force yeah there's two scenes that are so good where she confronts Stephen. Mm-hmm. So we're going to play the first one now. Why didn't you kill yourself? You should have killed yourself when it began. Oh, didn't you know? Didn't you know? What, you thought you could go on? Yes. Yes. Every day, into the future, go on betraying us both every day. You are not an evil man. You should have killed yourself when you first realized. And then I would have been able to mourn. It would have been hard, but I would have buried you. And I would have wept. Why didn't you just kill yourself? I mean, he has no response to her. He's just staring at her with his mouth hanging open. But what an incredible comment. You should have just killed yourself because this isn't who you are. And look what you've done. Yeah. And then she starts like sobbing and losing it. And he wraps his arms around her and she starts pounding his chest with her fists and falling apart. And he's like, give it to me. Give it to me like her pain as if he could you know as if as if he wanted it but he still can't feel give your grief for our son who's dead because of me to me and i'll take it for you and i'll hold it for you and i thought it was a good scene because it shows how desperate he is because he 
he really believes that he can do that in the moment, yep. even though we all know that he is a shallow pond, not a deep pool, as my therapist would say. Mm. He cannot go deep, honey. He cannot hold any of the grief or the guilt or the anger or the fury yep. for his wife because he is a shallow pond. So he gives her sleeping pills so she will be able to rest and he watches her sleep. And there's a scene where she wakes up. And realizes, of course, that it's real. Her son is dead because of what her husband has wrought. And she's still in such raw grief. And she takes off her chemise, her slip, and shows him her breasts and says, this wasn't enough for you? Yeah, she's totally naked. And she also talks about how there's one love for every person. And for her, mm -hmm. it was Martin. And for Stephen, it was clearly Anna. But who is Anna's great love? Mm -hmm. And who knows? What does Stephen realize in that moment, though? Probably it's it's her brother, duh. Yeah, the great love is the, the brother who killed himself out of his inability to possess his sister. And if Stephen really wanted to be her great love, he would have killed himself when it began. As suggested by his wife. That's right. It is a shocking scene, and it really is incredible acting from Miranda Richardson. And she lost the Academy Award that year to Marissa Tomei, my cousin Vinny, who was an ingenue, a very young actress, and that was a comedic role. So people were very surprised at the time that she beat all of these other tour de force drama roles by female actors. And it was the first time I remember that conversation about like ageism, the ageism of Hollywood. Okay. So he does go after Anna one more time. He, of course, probably thinks that they can be together now. Mm -hmm. And so he discerns that she's with her mother who's still at the hotel because it hasn't been that long since her she came to visit to meet her in-laws. Yeah, it's been like two nights. Mom is like, you know, she's not here, but he senses that she's there. And there's one last lingering look. He runs in and opens a door and there she is sitting on the bed just looking like, what do you expect? They stare at each other. He's standing in the doorway and she looks at him. And she looks away. It's just like. She looks away. It's over. She is done. It is over. And I think mom says something like, you know, she'll go back to Peter. Mm -hmm. Don't you know? Of course she does. Because that's what she does every time she kills someone. So there's one more scene Oof. and it's the postscript. I'm going to play the clip that I have. I saw her once more only. I saw her by accident at an airport, changing planes. She didn't see me. She was with Peter. She was holding a child. She was no different from anyone else. Well, first of all, we have to describe where he is. It's definitely in the future because he has long hair. He is wearing linen pants and sandals. 
natural cottons. Yes, he's in a desert town of some type. They say in in my notes that it's like Europe somewhere where he can be mm-hmm. anonymous, but it's like a shack. He's like walking through to this cobblestone street or something, wearing sandals, carrying one of those like produce bags that with the net. He's coming home from shopping. Stephen is wearing like a women's like espadrille sandal that's like has a slight <laughs> platform on it. It looks like something that you would your mom would get at Chico's. But That's however, right. yes, he like ducks into like a hubble. You see that it's just like he's living like a peasant, just a tiny studio mm-hmm. where he makes himself a cheese plate. Which is a harken back to the fact that she makes them a cheese plate because they're actually like attempting to have a nice dainty fuck session before his son dies, the day his son dies. So he's sort of recreating that. And then he sits as the movie ends. It pans out with him looking at this huge photo that he's blown up. There's one focal point in the room, and that is a giant blown up replica of the photograph that Martin gave to Stephen that day of the three of them mm-hmm. together. It's like Anna is the only one that's looking at the camera. Like Martin is looking at Anna and I think Stephen is looking at Martin. So he's just reliving this over and over again. And then when th- with this, you know, ominous uh, dialogue ending the movie saying, you know, that she he saw her and she looked like just any old person. Correctly identifying that. She could have been anyone because it was never about her. It's about him. But as we know, Josephine Hart, the author of the book, says that it is about erotic obsession. You found an author's note from a new edition of the book that The Guardian published when she died in 2011. She also says in the intro, damage is a confession without the desire for repentance. That, I was convinced, was the moral fulcrum of the book. It is, I believe now, the reason why those who read it are so often disturbed by the novel. The unnamed narrator seems to say to us, I cannot repent, for to do so would be to deny the very thing which brought me into existence. Me, me, me. I destroyed my family and brought about the death of my son. I am drowning in sorrow. I am broken by grief, but I do not repent. And like, I think that's what Louis Mal is trying to go for in, in these scenes or the screenwriter too, is like all of these scenes where he's given the opportunity to say, I am sorry. This exchange with Martin at the, the grandfather's country house about what a you know shitty dad he had been is met with silence or Miranda mm-hmm. Richardson saying, why didn't you just kill yourself is met with silence. It's true that I think what's unsettling about it is you see that his life has been utterly destroyed and resulted in <laughs> the death of his son. But you don't get the sense that he has a lot of that he's sorry, quote unquote. Right. And I read somewhere that she was really trying to capture Stephen's anhedonia, like his depression, his low-grade depression that comes from being a narcissist where you need constant stimulation and passion to feel like life is even Mm -hmm. worth living. You're so self-centered that it's literally just about his dick. 
And also in the same foreword that you just read from, she talks about the fact that the book is about erotic obsession, quote unquote, but also grief and envy. But she says the grief and envy are, clean, quote, cleaner themes to write about. Erotic obsession is more shadowed. Is it just lust? The pejorative demonstrates contempt for what is in itself a powerful instinct. Erotic obsession of the kind described in damage is not just lust. Others may dispute this and have and no doubt will continue to do so. So she's saying this was not just that they were hot and horny for each other and they wanted to bang and that Stephen was a bored, you know, repressed husband, like that it it really right. fell into like an addiction to this woman. My answer is simple. Lust does not last. Shakespeare is right. Lust is driven by the desire for pleasure, erotic obsession by the necessity of union. That's interesting. So it's yes. not about pleasure. Yes. It's about being with the person and it does I think create a sense of it can create a sense of like mania um yes and yes. so she goes on to write that is what makes the obsessed be it a man or a woman forever unreachable to others it is rooted in the psychology and in the case of damage it is Anna Barton's psychoerotic power which both creates Ooh. the man as he sees it and which destroys him. Yeah. You gotta have a hot piece to feel like a man. You know, I wrote down this this quote from T.S. Eliot. Half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to harm, but the harm that they cause does not interest them. Or they do not see it. Or they justify it because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. Mm-hmm. So in order to keep his secret about himself, I guess, in his own mind, he participates by gaslighting his mm -hmm. young daughter and, you know, lying. Well, right. To think well of themselves. That's the perfect quote. It, it tracks with the idea of the nice guy that breaks your heart. This person who can't bear to think of themselves as an asshole. Right. Or a normal person. Like yes, exactly. Great point. Yeah. Right. Like there's something so damaged about me that I have this power and only the other damaged people are drawn to me and me to them because, you know, the two of us together is even more explosive. I think that people who have been through some shit are attracted to people who have been through some shit. For sure. And one of the psychological themes is definitely a concept called repetition mm. compulsion, which I've certainly been guilty of. And that is you recreate or we recreate the relationship dynamics with any gendered yeah. person, but also typically in romantic relationships and attractions that remind us of our parents. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you grew up, you know, with an alcoholic father or a narcissistic father or a mentally ill father or an absent father, 
you are going to be able to stand being with another person with those That's qualities. Right. And you might not know how to be in relationships with people who are, quote, available or, or healthy. And healthy and or who like you sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And of course, we all hope that we grow out of this via maturity, introspection, therapy, 12 steps, you name it. And most of us do, but it doesn't really go away. Like it's sort of baked into us. And the culture supports it with our ever present idea that men, particularly fathers, men cannot be faithful to Mm -hmm. one person. Like monogamy, you can't expect it. And men in positions of power, of course, are going to have affairs or have the kind of sex with abandon. It's just accepted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And why is that? Because monogamy isn't real. Like, I think that more and more as culture progresses, like we see more and more, I think, heteronormative or hetero relationships, like actually questioning that how many couples out there go through infidelity with each other and stay together and make it work because shit happens i guess i'm not even talking about monogamous relationships in terms of like what is Mm -hmm. allowed versus like polyamory where you have an open Mm -hmm. relationship or even really about sexuality as much as the compulsion to like believe that powerful men get to keep secrets I'm talking about Bill Gates. I'm talking about Bill Clinton. I'm talking about all the bills on the Lolita Express <laughs> of life. But no, you're right that it is only a concept that monogamy can be considered to be a loose concept by powerful men and powerful men only. Yeah. If a woman has an affair, it's not held in the same regard. It's like, oh, she fell in love with someone else or she moved on to a bigger breadwinner. Totally. She got bored. She wasn't being taken care of in the relationship. Or the opposite of it, which is what is wrong with her? She's a monster. How could a mother do that to her family? So what does it all mean? What is Josephine Hart's message that infidelity equals the death of a family like infidelity that is introduced into Mm. a family like that happens within the confines of of a family unit like that the only way through is for that family to die I think you're right because she could have written a book just about two lovers but it it was truly about a family the son must die the wife wishes he had died we can assume that the daughter that Sally and his relationship has died. Absolutely. Um, You know, he's blown up his life and that can never end well. Let's just quickly talk about the players, like the adjacent players to this. I mean, the adjacent players being Josephine Hart herself, the author of the book, but then Mm -hmm. also Louis Maul and Jeremy Irons. What are their family Mm -hmm. stories? What are their backgrounds? I was particularly interested in Josephine Hart's life because of the fact that she wrote this book. Damaged is her first book. It came out in 1991. She died in 2011, tragically, of cancer. So she was older when she published for the first time, right? 
Yeah, I think she was in her 40s. She wrote the book in six weeks. She wrote the first two chapter longhand in a matter of hours, which is how all writers write, right, Erin? Just comes right out of you. (laughs) Only Paul McCartney. Yeah, exactly. She wrote seven books in her lifetime, but Damage was the first, sold over a million copies, published in 1991. She is the wife of Marie Saatchi of the advertising mm-hmm. dynasty of Saatchi. Really? Yeah, Saatchi and Saatchi, who really pushed her allegedly, um, according to an article I read in the Irish Independent, Josephine Hart was Irish after she died. He pushed her to get into writing and to be explore writing poetry. But she actually had a horrendously tragic childhood. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that, you know, Anna's character experiences the death of a brother. She's very young and how much it affected her. She is one of six kids. At the age of six, she lost her brother, Charles. He was only 18 months old. Apparently, her mother was never the same after that. When mm-hmm. Josephine is 17 years old, her younger sister, Sheila, dies. And Mm. Sheila had been brain damaged as a result of meningitis and paralyzed since she was two years old. So she dies when Josephine is 17. Six months later, so the sister has died. Six months later, her brother Owen is killed in an explosion while he's experimenting with chemicals. What the hell? And all that remained of the Hart children was Josephine and a brother and she's quoted as saying it sounds like a very strange thing to say but when I was really young when I was 17 I had to look at life really hard and say okay I will continue to live which is similar to damaged people you know know Mm -hmm. they can survive so at 17 she's faced all of this loss and she's like I I will continue to live and she writes that she never she never really recovered from the grief She describes that summer that her brother and her sister died as being as if a cleaver came down. She was supposed to go to to college and she didn't go because she was so traumatized by this. So that I thought was interesting and possibly telling about some of these scenes and damage the book and the movie. Louis Maul, you know, he has a whole, we we touched on some of the movies that he made, but Mm -hmm. he is mostly associated with like sexy sex sex movies, including Mm -hmm. The Lovers. And then another movie called Murmur of the Heart, which is about a a mother-son love affair. It's about incest. Yes. And I thought it was interesting because in the moment with in the movie with Miranda Richardson, when she says, like, everyone has a person, you know, Mar- mm-hmm. not you were my person to Stephen, right. to Jeremy Irons. My our son, Martin, was right. my person. He was not my daughter. Not my daughter. My son <laughs> was the, the one that I loved the most and who was right. the only one I could love and who loved me back. I found a New York Times profile from 1972 with Maul. I think it's come out recently, recent-ish to Murmur of the Heart coming out, which shocked everyone because it's about an incestuous relationship, or at least it shocked Americans. So at this point, it's 1972, and he has a little boy that he had with his German actress who was in Murmur of the Heart. His son is named Manuel Quatemic, which crazily is the name of my cousin, Quatemic. No. Yes, it was like... Very popular to name children after Aztec gods in the 70s. Look it up. 
Um, okay, so here's Maul saying he's telling the New York Times writer that he had really planned on like getting a bunch of work done the summer after his son was born and he just couldn't because he spent the entire time watching his son, quote, an infinitely fascinating spectacle. You know, for the first time in my life, I really wish that I had been born a woman. There is a kind of invisible umbilical cord still joining mother and son. She senses instantly, almost viscerally, his needs and feelings before he expresses them. He's talking about his wife and his baby son. It makes yeah. mother and son incest seem very natural. I'd love to have that kind of bond with my own child. Okay, wow. Dude. That quote didn't age well. But it's interesting in the context of the Miranda Richardson breakdown in the movie. But also, I've heard many um, a wife and mother say, as soon as I had that baby, my husband was so jealous. And our total dynamic changed because I belong to the baby now. Totally. Yeah. So this is in the same New York Times profile. Mal says that he got curious insight into Murmur of the Heart from a comment by a young Japanese director at Cannes who didn't understand at the Cannes Film Festival who didn't understand a word of French. He came up to Mal via an interpreter afterwards and said that he found the movie a beautiful study of the search of a son for a father. And Mal says, at first I thought he was crazy. And then he says, but you know, the more I thought of it, the more I think he's right. That is the subject of the film. In many ways, the father in the film is like my own father, our relations and his relations with all of us. He Mal had brothers with all of us, particularly the four boys. There were seven Mal children, has always been polite, distant, and for years, faintly hostile, which I thought was interesting. Yep. And then just quickly, Oof. I found an interview with his daughter, Justine. So he has a, a daughter, Justine, after Manuel with another actress, and then he has Chloe Mall, who is the daughter of Candace Bergen, who he married, I think, in the late 80s. So Justine was 20 when her dad died in 1995 of uh, mm -hmm. lymphoma. And she made a movie, Justine Mall made a movie in 2013 called Jeunesse, or Youth in French. That's autobiographical about a woman's like very intense relationship with a father. And the father in the movie also dies of a degenerative disease. I found an interview with Justine Mall from a site called culturaldaily.com. She says, at 20, I saw my father as my security. So she was 20 when he died. He was everything to me. He was practically my reason to live. I guess the father-daughter relationships can be really, really intense. And this one was very, very intense. We didn't really wow. have a traditional father-daughter relationship. He didn't want my brother and I to call him Papa or Daddy. We called him Lulu. It wasn't fraternal. It was something more along the lines of a friendship. And then we'll just quickly go through Big Jer. Jeremy Irons. Ugh. What kind of a father is he? What is his father's story? <laughs> Who's Jeremy Irons' dad? Jeremy Irons has been married to his wife, Sinead Cusack, since 1978. That's shocking They me. have two sons, Max and Sam. Sam is a photographer now. Max is an actor. But Sam co-starred with his father and Danny, the champion of the world, in 1985 when he was a little boy. Jeremy Irons is a practicing Catholic. He is pretty conservative. What? I know. And in, 20, in 2016, I guess he made some very controversial comments about gay marriage 
the sanctity of marriage and that he is also anti-abortion. This is from a 2016 profile in The Guardian in which the writer is talking about all of these comments that he's made that have gotten into trouble. So he sa says, the stickiest slip was three years ago when Irons cautioned that gay marriage could lead fathers to marry their sons to avoid inheritance tax. What is happening? Quote, incest is there to protect us from inbreeding. There was uproar followed by a faintly baffled clarification. Later, Irons' son, Max, said this father was just working through an argument out loud and got lost in the loopholes. But like, okay, let's break that quote down. Whoa. He cautioned that gay marriage could lead fathers to marry their sons to avoid inheritance tax. Quote, incest is there to protect us from inbreeding. So he's implying that we all would secretly like to fuck our children and our parents. And I guess Freud wouldn't disagree, but that incest is there to keep us. It's, it's a bad thing to keep the, us from inbreeding and sullying our DNA lines, et cetera, et cetera. But I've heard it all mm. against gay marriage. And this is the first time that I'm hearing that a man could possibly marry his son. To avoid um, inheritance tax. Like, what are you talking about? So, wow. Well, spoken like a true, incredibly wealthy asshole actor. He goes on in Catholic. this, like, um, inheritance tax is where my mind goes immediately when I think of gay marriage. Okay, so here's another quote. Our society is based on a Christian structure, he tells this Guardian reporter. If you take those religious tenets away, then anything goes and it will become terrible and you usually get into trouble. So again, a similar kind of idea of like Christianity, that sin and taboo keeps us from fuck our children and our parents. That is so disturbing and scary. Quote, adultery might be very nice, but finally it fucks us up and it fucks up the structure of society. We don't steal. Well, some people do. But it makes life intolerable for everybody. Yes, you can be in love and raise a family wonderfully by not getting married. But actually, marriage does give us the strength because it's quite hard to get out of. And so it makes us fight more to, to keep it together. If divorce becomes dead easy, which it sort of has, then we don't have that backup because for everybody, relationships are hard. So he's saying wow. that marriages are challenging for a reason. And divorces are challenging for a reason, similar to this taboo of incest. Exactly. You know. Exactly. It's interesting coming from him, you know, set against what we just talked about with this movie that he's in. Take abortion, Iron says. I believe women should be allowed to make the decision. But I also think that the church is right to say that it's a sin because sin is actions that harm us. Lying wow. harms us. Abortion harms a woman. It's a tremendous mental attack and physical sometimes. But we seem to get that muddled. In a way, thank God the Catholic Church does say that we won't allow it because otherwise nobody's saying that it's a sin. What? I would call abortion a fact and not a lie. Sin is action that harms us. Lying harms us. Abortion harms a woman. You see, you see him going through but the not like, a man. mental. He doesn't say, a, yeah, exactly. Not a man. Men aren't affected at all by abortion. But he's still against it. But he's still against <laughs> it. And then I found a profile of Max from 2013 from the UK publication, The Independent. The interviewer asked him if he would ever work with his dad. Max responds, that's my nightmare. My mom, maybe, <laughs> but my dad, that would be really difficult. Have you ever met him? 
He's a force of nature. I'll put it that way. He likes to make his voice heard on set, and I wouldn't be able to disentangle father and actor. No, we'll keep well away from that. Jeremy Irons, his own dad, was an accountant. In 2012, he told the London Evening Standard while promoting the movie Margin Call, which is actually a really good movie, and I highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it, and I've seen it multiple times. The movie Margin Call, um, which is set on the eve of the 2008 financial crisis, and Jeremy Irons basically plays the CEO of Goldman Sachs. So he's being interviewed about Margin Call. It says that he grew up with a cash-savvy accountant for a father, but admits that he fought against being financially minded and is not ruled by money. Quote, because my father was a chartered accountant, I'm an actor and I'm hopeless with money. I'm not really interested in it. It's very nice to have some, but I have no interest in it as long as I have enough to buy a cup of tea. So in a way, I reacted against my father. And, you know, no it's way. funny because as long as I have enough money to buy a cup of tea. Well, Jeremy Irons and his wife own a castle in Ireland in Cork. And they also have uh, six houses on top of that. So movie stars make a lot more than it's an account. It's a not, it's an interesting thing to say that you're not ruled by money. But anyways, that was just some of wow. the backstory that I uncovered from all of the, the main players here. I mean, which I think just proves that there are no accidents mm. when it comes to filmmaking yep. and art. Yep busy yep. like all of these people were drawn together for this particular story that they wanted to tell mm -hmm. about extreme parental child relationships codependency sex lying sin incest and betrayal and a orgasm that will haunt you forever <laughs> thank you Erin for talking about damage and even though we just talked about it and told you everything that happens, you should still watch and tell yeah. us what you think. Yes, it's really fun. Okay. Okay. Bye. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And for bonus content, go to patreon.com slash you guessed it, Tell Me About Your Father where for as little as $3, you'll get access to an extra episode of Daddy Issues every month. Oh, and Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think.